Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and adventures in AI-driven warranty work. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This week, we're going to be talking about AI uh, and chip design, and then we'll finally be able to talk about the box truck, because... Last time we talked about the CNC machine for like the entire episode. Which was not the intent, but it just happened to be that way. It just happened to be that way. So our first topic is AI can't design chips without people. I think this article is from EE Times, and it's the field of chip design has witnessed significant advancements in artificial intelligence, yet the task of designing complex computer chips remains a formidable challenge. While AI has shown promise in various domains, its limitations in fully automating the chip design process persists. However, AI role in aiding chip designers is expanding, enabling faster design iterations and performance optimizations. So this is kind of like an article about how AI is like in the news right now with art. And I think there's like a music AI now. It's trendy. Yeah, you can like chat GPT. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use ChatGPT 3. I think iterations 4 is out now. But 3 we used like back in December to write a screenplay for like a Star Wars hacking sitcom almost. It was so good. <laughs> We're the code breakers. It was terrible. <laughs> what are you talking about? It was the worst <laughs> thing ever. No, it was amazing. Come on. And there's like all the AI art generators that are out there now. And then oh, what else is out there now? That you, that you can just go, oh, there's a bunch of speech synthesis out there now. I think it's called fakeu.com. Hmm. And it it's not making a fake you. It's a place where you I think you sign up and you can like, it's a text-to-speech generator. Yep. I think they might have some deep faking stuff going on in there too. You can try out. Yeah, I've seen some uh, videos of people using AI to generate songs using the voice of popular people out there and it's fairly um convincing it's really close yeah i I bet you somebody could i don't know why you would want to do this but somebody could probably make an ai voice of you and i with how many hours of audio exists out there for the podcast oh probably no problem whatsoever (laughs) like we have all the data you need (laughs) i was playing around with that fake you to generate some voices for a project and uh it's interesting how good and bad it can be i'll leave it that way But today we're talking about the use of AI in chip design, which I think is kind of funny because if there's any one area where AI has or or things that use computer automation or have been using it for a while, chip design has been using it for decades at this point, right? Because chip design is so complex and so intense, it is absolutely impractical for an individual to lay out a lot of these chips nowadays. And so the use of AI just makes sense for AI to learn what you're already doing and then apply it to, you know, other sectors of a chip or however the device needs to get made. Yeah, I think the famous example, which I think most electrical engineering students end up learning about in school, is that famous uh using an AI to make a, like they give the AI the, the, the model 
uh, like the inputs or outputs of a system and tell the AI to generate the hardware level description to program an FPGA basically. Mm. And it does so. And I think it's like folklore, I guess for electrical engineers where like it like develops like other parts of the system that aren't even really connected. Yeah. But the EMF speeds up other parts of the chip design as well. Yeah. Other cells start popping up and they're, who knows why, but the AI just found out that physically it needed that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very interesting, but I hear that every so often that story like pops up whenever you talk about like chip design and AI and the like. And I think it's funny because even if that is folklore, like it's, it, 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 that would be, that would be really fun for electrical engineers to have their, I don't know, their one story. And it, and it's funny because I heard that exact story from one of the engineers at work, I don't know, a few weeks ago. And I swear there's a YouTube video of them, of this exact story happening. In fact, if anyone knows of information on on that story of it being real, please put it in our Slack channel. I do think what we're starting to see now, we're starting with chip design, but you know, Steven and I aren't really chip designers. But I guess so this might turn into like more of a topic of just AI in general, what we're seeing. What I see a lot of is people starting to read a lot. This is not a thing I, I'm seeing at work, but what I see on like, let's say Twitter or in all the Discord channels I'm in is people trying to like over rely on AI. Does that make sense? Or rely on AI to do 100% of the work. Yeah, they end up spending more time shuffling the shovel of the inputs of the AI to get outputs that they want. Whereas if they would have just like done it... <laughs> <laughs> the, the right way the first time or the uh done it themselves not not necessarily the right way done it themselves the first time it might have been uh faster um, that's what ended up happening with when i wrote that screenplay the star wars screenplay is oh you spent hours on that yeah it took me longer to trick the ai to give me what i wanted than if i just sat down and just wrote it <laughs> Well, and we've certainly <laughs> talked about this before, but you see, the thing about it with your screenplay, you approached it knowing what, at least having an idea of what the outputs you wanted. Yeah. If you go to an AI and you don't know what the outputs are, and you ask it, and then you have to trust the outputs that what it gave you is correct, I think that's when you start to run into some problems with it. Uh, you know, we ran into issues with that. With, in fact, we had a whole podcast talking about chat GPT just believing whatever it spits out at you, even though and, and believing it because it is so confident when it gives you an output. It's just this. It thinks that this is the absolute golden truth. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an engineer at work that is absolutely dead set, believes that if he had 10 million dollars. I'm just throwing a number out there. I've heard him say multiple different numbers, but he believes that if he had some some large number of money, some some large amount of money, he could create an AI that would do PCB layout. That you could actually give it enough inputs to learn different people's styles and different methods of routing that he is fully confident that an AI router. And at that point, would you call it an auto router or would you call it an AI router? So if you're looking for investment, you would call an AI router. Oh, sure. 100%. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think an auto router is trying to execute an algorithm, whereas an AI router is trying to connect the dots between inputs and outputs. 
I mean, technically, the AI is an algorithm as well. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. They feel like they should be categorized differently, even though, sure, you could make an argument that they're both executing an algorithm. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, the auto-router doesn't learn, right? Whereas AI or machine learning actually learns. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it meaning that you could tell it no, and it would go, okay, let me try it a different way. Yeah, if you tell the auto-router no, it goes, okay, well, I'll just stop then. <laughs> Yeah, I'll just stop. Because I know my one way of doing this. Wasn't there a project out there for AI routing of boards? Oh, I it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. In fact, let me look it up. It says, design complex boards in less than 24 hours. No expertise needed. I do want to try this. So they have a free option. It says 250 air wires, I guess. Rat lines, right? So that'd be nets. Yeah, nets and, and, and four layers is currently available. So small board is what you can do. Small to medium. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that would be that would be interesting to spit something at them and see. Cause because I'm curious how you would interface with things like this when it comes to your mechanical stuff. Can you start by giving it a partially placed board and then it goes from there? Because that's that's the biggest thing that we've talked about multiple times is the AI is not going to know your mechanical aspects of your board. If you fix all of those components and then say you go and connect the dots, that's where AI is probably the best suited for this. Yeah, and one of my questions about this is, sure, like, let's say you place all your physicals, like your connectors. I think that's actually what we talked about last time about this topic was that's what you would have to do. By the way, okay, I, I have to pause you for a second. I love that. Let's start calling them Place your physicals, not your mechanicals. <laughs> it's your physicals. That's great. Physicals. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's awesome. Yeah, but yeah. So yeah, you place all those parts down. And then the whole aspect of what a trace is, how does the AI know about that? So more complicated auto routers that are like in cadence and those tools. Let's say you're routing a motherboard out like the 12, 16 layer boards. Those auto routers actually know like these signals have these frequencies and this kind of stuff, and these need to be impedance matched. You spend a lot of time defining what the nets are. Mm-hmm. That's not the nothing in this deep PCB, for example, says anything about that. So is it clearly just looking at oh, parts look like this on a board, or is it actually know like oh, I should look up this component and then learn about its data sheet, like what an engineer would be doing and learn and figure out, oh, this is an analog part. And so the ground looping needs to look like this. That That's a really interesting question. I don't see how it could. What this feels like is a really, really fancy, better way of doing auto routing. In other words, just like I said, connect the dots, but learning how other people connect the dots and then this getting better at connecting the dots. So if you need it, if your design required, let's say, a split plane between analog and digital, it would probably not be able to figure that out. I don't know, but my guess, my gut feel is how could it, unless you told it that. I mean, you clearly probably have to give it the part number of your part, right, that's on your board. Like, does it actually go out and, like, consume the data sheet for that part? I mean, 
now we're talking about like whoa blow your mind kind of ai stuff if it goes in it it finds the section that says you know suggested pcb routing and then learns that and then tries to implement it or on the flip side it could go into its neural net filing cabinet basically of all the boards it's seen and go oh i've seen this part before on this board and this person routed it this way and so it should be more like that which does make sense now now if you have a new component that's no never been used before then it probably will have no idea if it's trying to use that method but that actually would make more sense yeah this one engineer routed this part this one and you're kind of hoping that its data set's good at that point, too. You're hoping, yeah, that once they got the board, it actually passed and was getting like worked, right? I think we talked about this, too, on the podcast, but the whole idea of this hybrid model of using these AI models just help you accelerate or be just be more efficient with your time. Because there is a lot of routing that this is I know we're getting away from chip design, but honestly, like chip design is a lot like routing a board. It's just way more layers and way smaller. And you're routing with atoms. <laughs> That's true, actually. Like, yeah, or yeah. no atoms. Yeah, we're, we're talking about hundreds of atoms here. Yeah. As opposed to quite a bit more. So, like, let's say you have a whole bunch of bypass capacitors. You've routed probably a million bypass capacitors in your life. Mm, I don't know about that much, but a lot, yes. Yeah, it's a lot. But is there any value for you to just keep routing those? If the AI could just handle that part for you. And you, so you just click a button and boom, now it's like, oh, I know that these capacitors need to go through these power pins, which would be a lot simpler of a data set, and they need to be close to the pins, and I can just route those automatically. Yeah. You know, actually, yes. And another example, let's say you had a, a big old chunky BGA and you needed to escape the BGA. You put all your physicals down on the board and then you tell it to analyze the BGA and the AI looks at every pin and looks at where things need to go and it could make suggestions on here's the fan out and then push all the pins just to the edge of where they would exit the BGA. And it's like, you can connect the dots after this, but I suggest, you know, fan this pin in this direction and this pin in this other direction because all of these other things. I think that would be... Your HDMI connector is over here and then your USB is on the other side. Right, right. To intelligently break out pins, things like that. I, I love that. That's that's a, that's a great. Now, now, let's say I had a data bus that was, I don't know, 16, 16 uh, lines wide and I needed to get from point A to point B. If I could say like, hey, AI, find a good path for these 16 lines to to go from point A to point B, that would be really useful. Like, okay, so this hybrid model, like you're talking about, taking chunks of your design and having AI execute on those pieces where you could pause and say, here's the characteristics I need this AI to do and give it a limited set of inputs and outputs saying, 16 lines, A to B, and maybe prioritize length or something like mm -hmm. that while keeping spacing between all 16 the same. Like that sounds like a really good use of AI as opposed to just click the button like AI, I don't have a board. AI, I want a board. Make me a board. Like that's that doesn't seem particularly useful to me mm -hmm. because it's not going to give you what you want. Out of curiosity, have you ever 
at the fab just received auto routed boards like fully auto oh yeah all the time all the time yeah okay all the time i've dealt with some of those in the past and we're not talking about small boards like you know a little two inch by two inch i dealt with a board that was enormous four layers all auto routed and it was it was a nightmare if anything went wrong to trace it back did it work surprisingly it did (laughs) yeah no very surprisingly now it depends on how you want to define work. Did it execute the functions in a satisfactory manner? Sure. Was it like really good? I don't know. You'll have to ask the person who designed it. Like they probably went a lot deeper than we did. We had to turn it on and say like, yes, the function functions, but I don't know. Like <laughs> it is always funny when you see that though, because it sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Now, one thing the to- think about with this AI. I've had this talk, I guess, with some of my friends before, especially with AI art generation. And the whole idea of AI or its role in society, I guess, this might be getting a little bit out of our normal wheelhouse that we talk about, but something that I like to talk about with AI is the whole idea is it's also the same reason why we do like Python as, as engineers. What's, what's that, that book? Automate the boring stuff with Python. So like AI, how I view it is that's what it's supposed to be doing for me. It's supposed to be automating the stuff that I find really boring with projects. But that leads to very interesting things with, let's say, art. Because when you are, let's say you're a beginning artist, your art is, it's like like rotting PCBs. Like you're not very good at it, right? But it's different for artists though usually when you're starting out as an artist your art's not the best either but if you're trying to make your way as one at least people will pay you to do like logos and stuff like that like simple art let's say ai takes away that sector of the boring art right of like logo generation or font generation or simple backgrounds that kind of stuff does that reduce how many people can enter that market because now you're getting rid of all the, like the basic entry level jobs. I don't know if that's a big concern with PCB layout, but it might be. And it might be the same thing with this chip design stuff is if they automate away more of the entry level, you're just there doing bypass gaps on like a motherboard. That's like your job as first job out of college routing boards. And like you're on this team and they're like, we can't trust you to do anything but route bypass gaps. <laughs> and there's 6,000 on there's this 6, board. 6,000 of them. Yeah. But by the end, you're going to be really good with that tool, like Cadence or whatever tool your team's using to route these boards. You're going to be pretty proficient at that tool by then. Is that going to be a problem? <laughs> All the time, the tool is learning your thing so it can replace your job. <laughs> yeah, you got to replace your job. I don't know if that's going to be a problem or not. I'm a lot more concerned with the creative jobs than the technical ones because the technical well, no, no, ones no, that's what i'm saying is art is the same has that problem is you're automating away the simple art jobs that a lot of artists would use to get started like making logos that's not, i guess that's more graphic design but you know where i'm getting well at. but i think the point that i'm getting at here is less about even automating the i guess lower level jobs it's more about learning a more traditional way or becoming creative in a somewhat more, shall we say, natural way is 
you're going to make a lot of really, really bad stuff. Like if you're learning an instrument or if you're learning even graphic design or if you're learning how to draw or if you're learning some kind of a creative art that requires you to manipulate a medium of some sort, you're going to be really bad at it first. But with AI, you go from not knowing how to do it to making something that's acceptable instantaneously almost. And so is it going to discourage people from putting in the hours to become proficient and become really good at their craft? Because why learn how to make graphic design when I can just go computer, give me X, Y, Z, and it's up to the par that you want in seconds. Whereas it would take you years, if not decades to become that good at a tool or just in your mind on how to wrangle things. So I worry about the creative aspect of things. Like you can create a song in seconds now. Have you ever tried to create a song just by yourself? It doesn't Yeah, happen. you heard it. Right, yeah. <laughs> it had one instrument and it was like 15 seconds long and you were like, this is garbage. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but. I'd made it. But, well, okay, so <laughs> even think about it in the you know before the before the AI times, or or even before really computer aided anything creativity. Your favorite bands were cranking out what one two albums a year, and then break that down. An album is 12, 14 songs, maybe eight in some situations, and each one of those songs is three to five minutes unless you're listening to like prog or something. So like the end result of what you're getting from this is 30, 40 minutes of content. And you get that from your favorite band once a year, twice a year, if maybe that, if, that, if, if that, and now you can do a few button clicks and you can have that entire thing in seconds. Right. As you were saying that I was thinking about a, this has to exist by now. If not, this is like a million dollar idea. Think about Pandora, the music service. So Pandora as a music service is you give it a couple like of your favorite artists and it goes, okay, I'm going to serve you your favorite artists to you. And as you thumbs up and thumbs down tracks, it learns what to serve you content. It was one of the very first like, content delivery algorithms that existed out there. It was like before even maybe it came after YouTube, but YouTube as like an algorithm wasn't really a thing until I think after Pandora. But anyways, I'm thinking like Pandora is what you would give it. Like these are your favorite artists and stuff. And then it would just generate tracks for you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That are just like, I say new all this AI art stuff and music, it's derivative work. I mean, there's that saying that every work is derivative because there's no new ideas. Yeah, but if it's AI generated, it is like defined as derivative. <laughs> it is defined as derivative. That is true. But now you've got... That even comes up with a very interesting question is if you are generating this derivative work, how much of a percentage got put into it? So then how do you do royalties? Mm, royalties based off of commercials that happen while somebody is listening to your derivative work. Yes. Yeah, that's basically how you do it, right? Now, now that brings up a really fun idea. But no, so like you could like thumbs up and thumbs down these tracks that is building for you and it will modify its inputs. Well, but- and So you could have continual new music forever. But, okay, so on that point, how about a channel that is perpetual? 
where it's constantly making new music and it doesn't save any of the old music. So it is in the moment, always making new music and it just continues. And as you like, as it's playing, like you said, you, you thumbs up or thumbs down, it will kind of lean more that way or lean away from it. But like, so everything you're listening to is always new and you'll never hear it again. That's actually a really cool art project. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like this is the only time you'll ever hear. Someone has to have done that. It's, it's AI jam band. That's all it is. That is, is, but it's like continuously. That has to exist already. (laughs) Yeah. But it's all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, just a perpetual loop. Not, sorry, not a loop. Cause a loop infers that you go back to the beginning. AI just continual. It's continual. Somebody's got to have that. Or someone's working on it. Yeah. I'd love to like go check that out. It would be really cool also if you could like spool up your own perpetual station or you could listen to station with your groups of friends and like then you have the community guiding the music Mm -hmm. as it goes. That would be neat. I think there's always going to be a market for humans building or doing the thing that's automated. I mean, there's like YouTube channels of people that build horse-drawn carriages still. That's still a thing. Yeah. So I don't imagine it ever going away. It's definitely going to shuffle how many people can do X thing. Like basically for a musician, you're going to have to just be a really good musician now. You can't just be a mediocre musician anymore and make money. Yeah. It's going to be the same thing with like if AI, well, I'm not going to say if, when, when AI starts creeping into your EDA tool, you are going to have to be a better router layout person than <laughs> than the bot you were. Yeah. That's just how it's going to be. It's just how it's going to play out. It's going to be put more emphasis on what we talked about a while back, this whole idea of like full stack engineer where like you do more mechanical stuff. It's That's how it's going to be pushed towards too is you're going to have to be learn more about the whole project requirements to build this stuff correctly. And the thing is, though, is it necessarily a bad thing? You just become more efficient at building products. Or going back to your band example, what if, let's say Metallica. Metallica is like, we're going to use AI now, okay? But now instead of one album every couple years, they can do an album every like six months now. But it's like, they are the ones tweaking and having the AI write their stuff and then they go play it maybe. Right. Yeah, well, and and that goes back to what you're saying about, you know, it, it the hybrid model of it aiding you as opposed to it replacing you. And I, I think for at least a long period of time, we will be in that mode where we still have to be in control, but we utilize it as a tool as opposed to a replacement. Mm-hmm. And and in, I, I predict that this is going to actually turn out in some ways like the diamond industry where you have real diamonds and you have synthetic diamonds, right? It's gotten to the point where the differences between those is minimal. So why would it matter that you go buy a real diamond? But there's, there's still plenty of people that demand it is a real diamond. It can't be synthetic. And, and perhaps that's just some kind of emotional response, or perhaps there's some other deeper understanding that that person has. But I would not be surprised if we get to the point where art 
and creative works start to be classified as, no, I did this. There's no AI in this. Like it gets sold under the banner of, I did it the old school way. I did it the classic way. And it's respected differently because of that. Oh yeah, yeah. I I, I totally see how that's going to go. This PCB is, or this chip design's bespoke. I totally see that's how it's going to happen. That's how it will play out. Is you will have the mass market stuff or stuff that pushes the boundaries using AI tool sets. And then what's very interesting about that is that's how like a lot of sci-fi is like that. Where like it's like man versus AI. And let's say video games actually really like this. Like it's like you can pick three endings, right? To a video game. It's like either like humans win and like AI is destroyed or the AI wins and like humans are destroyed or like there's like this merge mm. together. Yeah, Skynet becomes active, right? Yeah. Well, Skynet just wiped out humans, so that's the AI winning. <laughs> I, You know, I kind of like the idea in the creative world of one thing the AI doesn't necessarily do yet is the physicality. Like, AI is not going to go turn a beautiful piece of wood into a bowl or it's not going to actually physically paint on a canvas or something like that. But I like the idea that the initial concept AI could create like a 3d model of this really cool wooden structure. And then a human goes and makes that reality or AI could present an image and then a human paints that image or, or traces. So like the human is the tool or the connective tissue that takes the idea from the AI and makes it physical. I, I kind of like that idea. Oil painting by numbers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> by algorithm. It's engineers using AI tools yeah. or potentially in the future. I didn't say potentially it is going to happen. That, that this is a thing, everyone out there, this is going to happen. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. It's just, there, there's no, like, I'm going to ignore this and then it won't happen. It's going to happen. And if you use it as a tool and embrace, uh, embrace the AI, <laughs> uh, you know, and try looking at it as another tool. It's like going back to PCB design. Think about when the first person used an EDA tool versus drawing on the PCB with a transfer or like drawing out the transfer with like a Sharpie. Okay. Mm. Was that automation to do basically CAD work? Like, sure, it put the draftsman out of business, but now we have this huge electronics market, right? Mm. It just shifts where you're, again, why I go back to, it's automate the boring stuff out of your, your job, basically, and so you can do the more creative, important things. Mm. Now, the thing is, now it's trying to do creative stuff like art, which everyone thought, like, that was never going to happen. But the interesting thing, the, actually, the whole interesting thing about all this is, AI-generated art is acceptable in a lot of use cases now where you never would have thought about that. Like, let's say five years ago or 10 years ago, you would be like, oh, yeah, AI art, you could tell, right? No, you can't really. And it's acceptable, like, I guess it's a good replacement for stock photos, right? <laughs> clip art. Yeah, it's a clip art and stock photos. You now have a way to generate unique stock photos. Right. Think about just that concept now where like that's I, I, that's like one thing that bugs me is like stock photos because you can just always tell it's a stock photo, right? Yeah. 
It's just, they just got that look to it. But now you can generate as much stock photos as you want forever. The term influencer is going to mean something else now. Because you're not influencing people, you're influencing the AI. That's totally a thing. There's a YouTube channel I I watch called Superfast Matt, and his saying is all hail the algorithm. Yeah. Because you, you try to impress the algorithm, not the viewers. Oh, the people, the, yeah, the people will just open up their mouth and consume whatever flows out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, one other thing that I was thinking about with chip design that I think lends itself to be really well suited for AI design is is the fact that there's so many repeating elements inside of chips that it's not like you have there's going to be a plenty of of unique cells and unique circuits within chips but there's going to be so many step and repeats and so many copies of cells that even within a single chip you have a, a massive data set that you can train your AI with. And as soon as you have a few chips, you now have a gigantic amount of data on that. Whereas with like a PCB design, if you're trying to train it on stuff, you know, you may only have one copy of this type of circuit per every board you do. That's not a huge data set for it to learn off of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree there. The other thing that AI can do is it can actively take in inputs that you can't. Take for instance... As it's doing its work, it can take into account cost of materials and availability of materials while it's actually doing the layout. And that is something that, you know, we might check on a very or a semi regular basis, whereas it could just be constantly in incorporating that. Like as it's routing that ginormous BGA fan out, it goes, oh, wait, Mauser doesn't have these anymore. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and it can either pause until you, or it can be like, oh, but this package is available. Er, make a 90 degree turn. And yeah, you watch your board and like your part disappears and a new one pops up. <laughs> yeah, a new one pops in. <laughs> uh, yeah, I foresee things like that being possible. So next week, this is not the end of the podcast yet, but next week we're going to have Zap and Hyron from Anna Exoron, and we're going to be talking more about AI. And uh, DEF CON 2023, which is a uh, DEF CON 31. And somehow these all come together. Yeah, mesh together. Everything connects. Yeah. AI, it's going to happen to your job no matter what. It's one of those better learn to use it than to put your fingers in the ear and ignore it. Yeah. I mean, if it increases efficiency, it will be part of your job. It will happen. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Before my father retired... He was telling me, he's like, hey, you know, I'm getting older and they're starting to bring in kids who are 21, 22 years old right out of college. And he's like, they're just blasting through software that takes me forever to learn. And they're just, they pick it up and run with it. And he's like, I'm realizing like I'm obsolete. And he wasn't sad about that. He's just like, yeah, that's just the, the nature of things. And I can kind of foresee that if you're not getting on board, you'll go obsolete pretty quickly. Sorry, I didn't mean to leave that on a dark note. <laughs> <laughs> learn, learn. That's that's what you need to do. All right, next topic? Yeah, next topic. So we're going to talk about the box truck and adventures in warranty work. This is actually a, a little bit old at this point. It's a little bit old. I think it's about a month old now. Yeah, sounds about right. But we're going to bring this up and talk about the future, what I've been working on it now. So the box truck is... 
I bought a 2021 Chevy Express 4500. So it's like the big chassis. It's like a ton and a half chassis van, basically, that has a 18-foot box on the back of it. It's basically a big FedEx truck or big FedEx van, I should say. And I bought it so I can tow my Jeep around to go off-roading and camping and also convert the inside of it to an RV. And so I'm doing the RV conversion part right now. And everything was going great with the project, and then it didn't start. It would crank and crank and crank. The engine would turn over and turn over with that noise, and it just would never fire up. And this thing is effectively brand new. Effectively brand new. It's got 1,300 miles on it right now. Yeah, that's brand new. And it threw a P129F code. And so being the engineer I am, I know how to use Google. (laughs) So I Googled that code. And uh, Google's AI served up the relevant information to me. (laughs) And basically what that code means is something is wrong with the fuel module. Meaning that it's not getting speed data back from the fuel module. Yeah, I'm looking it up right now. It says fuel pump driver control module, fuel pump speed signal incorrect. Correct. And so what's interesting about this truck is all my other vehicles and all other vehicles I've worked on, they just have a, the the fuel pump is a DC motor. So you apply voltage to it. And sometimes they will have like a PWM signal to the motor. So you can like variably drive the pressure of the fuel pump. Most time it's just on or off though. This actually has a brushless motor for the fuel pump, which is kind of a new thing. So it's got a brain box. Yeah, so it's got a brain module, so it can adjust the speed that way with a brushless motor. So what the P129F code means is the computer sent the command to the fuel module to turn the pump on, and when it got the commands back, the fuel module was reporting the wrong speed of the fuel pump. And so I actually was able to dive into the CAN bus uh, with my computer. And basically, it was able to talk to the module, but the module was report like it would tell it 8,000 RPM or whatever the number was. And the fuel module would just say zero back. So it was it wasn't getting anything from the motor. Okay, so at, at least it was just zero, not, you know, Error. give me 8,000 and it's given me 4,000 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And the fuel pump wasn't running. I could put my hand on like the fuel tank and you couldn't feel the fuel pump movement at all. So I was like, well, it's either the module's bad that's driving the fuel pump or the fuel pump itself is bad. And unfortunately, back in the day, what you could easily do is just jump 12 volts to the fuel pump and you could just drive the fuel pump and see if that's actually the problem. Well, you can't do that with a brushless motor. And so I was like, oh, oh yeah, I'll just order a fuel module. Well, I did a little more research on that. And you have to program the fuel modules. Of course you do. Because of course you do. And I don't have the right hardware or software package to do that. And so I was like, okay, well, I bought a brand new box truck. Time to use the warranty. So I called up GM Chevy and I got hopped around to a couple of different dealers here in Houston because I had to have one that basically could handle a medium duty truck that was that big. So there was one about six, seven miles from my house that could do it. And so like, great, we'll send out a tow truck in the morning to come pick it up. So the tow truck shows up that morning, takes one look, and it's just one of those little pickup style tow trucks, takes one look at the box truck, and it was like, no, I'm not taking it. It's good. It's way too big. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay. So the next tow truck comes out, 
about 30 minutes later, and it's the same style truck. Okay, same exact same truck. It's the kind that, ha- that can just pick up in the front and like tow the rear wheels, mm-hmm. but you get towed off like the freeway with in your normal passenger car. Yeah, just much too small. Yeah, much too small. And then I like called up the dealer again, and the person on the phone at the dealer knew what I had when we were discussing. I sent them pictures of it, and they're like, yes, it's a big box truck, blah, blah, The dispatcher at GM couldn't figure out just how big this box truck was. And so the next thing that comes out is a flatbed, and it was... The flatbed was shorter than the wheelbase of the truck. So it's like you <laughs> couldn't even get it on there. And then by around 5 o'clock p.m., another tow truck comes out. This one is a longer flatbed, which can technically hold it. But the box truck would be like five feet up off the ground. It would be like a 15 feet up, and it would be like over the, the height limitations. Yeah, it's a little scary. Yeah. They started to put it up there, and it was like, that looks really sketchy. Yeah. But as this person is, like, unloading the box truck, because he's like, I'm not taking this thing. Yeah. Like, a 22-ton wrecker shows up. <laughs> like a semi-wrecker. Semi-wrecker. And the guy's <laughs> like, I'm taking the box truck. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he picks it up and just hauls it away and took it right to the dealer. But it took five tow trucks. Ugh, that's a, that's a terrible the- day. You must have been pissed. <laughs> I wasn't really pissed. I was just tired of dealing with it. Yeah. Okay, and it ended up being the fuel module, a $50 part. Oh, wow. Okay, the tow cost GM 700 something dollars. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> For a $50 part. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so. So what, what, what was actually wrong? Was it the brain box? Yeah, the brain side was talking, but not the motor driver part of it wasn't working. I mean that it could receive the command to turn on the motor but it couldn't actually turn on the motor so like probably a mosfet or something like the like drive that. side of things yeah something in the drive side was bad because the pump was fine hmm. a 50 dollars part 700 dollars tow <laughs> well that's great thing is i didn't have to pay any of it sure but that's also something to keep in mind for you in the future in case that happens and it's on your dime i actually signed up for a triple a rv style service <laughs> quadruple a <laughs> yeah quadruple a <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, it was like 110 dollars a year and they will tow that gigantic thing yes okay yes i mean they tow rvs which is it's actually smaller than most rvs yeah so if you get one tow you easily paid for it I get, if I get one tow in seven years, it pays for itself. That, right, right. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that's a no-brainer, right? Yeah, that's cheap. That's really yeah. cheap. And it comes with, like, normal roadside stuff. So, like, if you run out of gas, someone will someone will eventually will show up with gasoline right. or diesel, et cetera. So, I, yeah, basically, I realized, like, how expensive tows can be. And uh, what with ones. I can't remember what's off the top of my head what the service is called. But if you just, like, Google... RV roadside assistance, like this several companies that pop up. But that was a month ago. What's happened since then? Mm. Uh, so I started looking and building the power system for the RV side. So I've already finished like most of the truck side stuff, like the extra coolers and auxiliary power systems and stuff, but nothing about the box side yet. And Todd from our Slack channel had some very interesting, they've done a lot of research in RV conversions and electrical systems as well. And so I've kind of picked and choose some questions and 
topics out of out of here uh, to talk about real quick. Like the big thing with these conversions or like RV systems is like, what's the voltage of your DC side? Most automotive systems are 12 volts. That's actually slowly changing though. Back way back in the day, it used to be six volts. Mm -hmm. Like we're talking like 50s and prior. What's it changing to? 48-ish. Huh. Mostly because of the, you know, those starters where like the, what's it? Where the engine shuts off when you're at like a stoplight. Yeah. Most of those cars that will kick back on, I don't know if, if most is right. I know Jeep does this. Okay. And a couple other companies, they have a 48 volt starter. And is that a separate starter? So you have a 12 for a starter starter? No, it's a normal starter. I think they're using a step up converter to go from 12 to 48. For a starter? So they can run the starter a lot harder. Hmm. And so it'll, it'll start faster. Because uh. that's actually a, the problem with starters, electric, 12 volt starters at least. Like when you crank, you're really actually only at like, I want to say like 200 to 300 RPM, which is below your idle speed. Right. Most cars idle around 600, yeah. maybe like 500 to 600. So if, if you really wanted like what I would call a, a seamless experience of an engine being off to being on, like internal combustion engine, you have to spin it faster to start it. And so that's what they do with the higher voltages. They can just spin it faster. Yeah. I'm sure the acceleration on that's pretty beefy, right? Yeah. I, I don't want to know, know what like the lifespan of that is too. But so that 48 volts, I don't think they're going to, we're not going to see like a massive shift to it, but we're seeing subsystems and cars going to it. But RV side using 12 volt, makes sense because then it matches the voltage of like the car side and that kind of stuff. But the problem with 12 volts is honestly, it's this problem with any kind of low voltage stuff is let's say you want to uh, run a high amperage device now uh, or a high power device. Now you need a lot of amperage for that low voltage. And so there's been some movements on like going to 24 volt systems. And now there's like 48 volt systems, which is actually really common with off grid systems. And a lot of RVs are starting to adopt these off-grid systems that are 48-volt DC. And so now you can have, I mean, you basically, like, third your wire diameter. So instead of having to run, like, a double-lot cable, you're running, like, maybe two-gauge mm. wiring around. It's still beefy wire. <laughs> still beefy wire, but nothing as crazy as, like, what the 12-volt power equivalent would be. So I, I'm actually going 48 volts. That's what I'm going to be doing. And, uh... Don't use solid wire. Always use flexible, you know, stranded wire. As much strands as you can. I like to use what's called welding wire. Um, it's got a ton of strands in it. A lot of strands. Very flexible. Very thick insulation. Make sure you get... I can't remember the UL number off the top of my head, but there's specific automotive and marine grade insulation that's like oil resistant and all that good stuff. You want high volt, like 600 volt insulation, that kind of stuff. You know, also... Solar panels, uh, 48 volt is a convenient voltage range for off-grid solar systems. Correct. That that could be uh, useful in your build. Yeah, yeah. Right before this podcast, I actually ordered the solar charger inverter oh, okay. uh, for my system. But you actually don't run it at 48 volts for your solar. You usually actually ramp the voltage up it's like because the minimize uh, wiring and... 
actually to memorize also your diameter wire uh, wiring that you have to run. Because usually your solar panels are much farther away than like where you actually want to use the power. And an RV, they're kind of like, you know, right on top of each other. So it's like, that's fine. But um, my solar panel system I'm going with is a, uh, I think it's like two, it's 550 watt per panel. And I'm going to put five panels on. Hmm. It's like 2,750 watts. But all those panels are actually going to be in series. And each one's like 49 point something volts which makes it like 250 volts. And then like, which is actually from my charger inverter box I bought is like right dab in the middle of the range, which is like between 50, you need to be between 50 and 500 volts for the solar panels to work. Got it. Something like, I'm like right in the middle, which is perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of those like solar panel chargers don't like high currents. Like, I think this thing maxes out at, like, 20 amps at whatever voltage you give it for the solar. And my panels would be, like, 11 amps since it's all in series. So Cool. Good stuff. So, yeah, we'll see how that all works out when I get it. For, like, crimping all the wiring, like, I have all the automotive, cr- like, always crimp your connections, well, your big connections. Soldering does, one, I you would need a big soldering iron to be able to solder like a one gauge wire or two gauge wire. But for crimping, they sell these like ways you can like hit an anvil, basically a die set, basically that you can hit it with a hammer and it'll crush the terminal. I would suggest not using those. They typically don't work too well. Like you don't get a really good solid crimp, get a hydraulic crimper. They're not that expensive anymore, and you're gonna be if you're building one of these systems, you're gonna be crimping a lot, so it's gonna be worth it. Is that the one that does the big like hex squeeze? Yeah, hex squeeze on them. Yeah, yeah. Because I've got a die set for one of those. I make a lot of cables. I think that thing goes down to like twelve gauge as well, so you can make some really good small gauge wires too. Nice. But yeah, don't do soldering in the system unless if you do do some soldering on like smaller gauge you use a lot of heat shrink around it so you really minimize the vibration of that solder joint cuz that's what what happens is like the you know solder will wick into these these stranded wires and then at that junction is where like the copper will work hard in and then fall apart for monitoring I'm probably going to use like the monitor the batteries I'm probably just going to use like a big shunt and then just track power in, power out. Because these are lithium. I'm going to be using lithium batteries. I bought some 48-volt uh, rack-mountable lithium batteries. And learning from my parents' golf cart project, which was a lithium conversion, basically you can't go off voltage off a lithium battery for, like, state of charge. Like, you, you won't know. Because um, they have such a linear drop-off till they run really close to empty, and then they plummet and voltage unlike a, a lead acid which has a more linear curve drop mm-hmm. in terms of like you know at 70 percent, it's this voltage lithium batteries don't really have that so the do state of charge you basically track how much current goes into the pack and then how much current comes out of the pack and you know how much uh how much you know spicy electrons you got left in there <laughs> Yeah, fuses, breakers, that kind of stuff. I haven't really thought too much about yet. I do know, like, so solar panels, you do need to have, like, a DC disconnect. So your solar panels go into a disconnect. Oh. And so that way you can, 
you can physically disconnect your panels because you're talking about 250 volt DC on my panel system. You got to be able to chunk that off. Yeah, and even normal panels are like when you're over like decent size. You're talking about 50 volt DC across the panel, so you mm-hmm. need to disconnect it, and that's like a UL. Is it a UL? Anyway, it's some regulation that I can't remember off the top of my head. Maybe next time I talk about it, I'll be like, "Oh yeah, it's this this regulation." You need to get one of those Jurassic Park ones that has to, you know, be pumped up before it fires off. Oh, the charge it up so it can activate. It'll actually break. <laughs> yeah, it actually will break across the arc, basically. Yeah. I don't think your voltage is that high, but it would still no, be No, it's cool. not that high. <laughs> and then the, I'm, I have, I bought like a inverter solar combo thing. Mm. It's like 3,000 watts of inverter, which is way more than I need. Because most of my stuff in the box, I'm planning on running off 48 volt DC. So like I'm planning on like a DC powered air conditioner and refrigerator and that kind of stuff. I think I'm going with, it's uh, the EG4 brand stuff. There's tons and tons of companies out there that just rebrand the same stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, I went with EG4 because the distributor for it is near Dallas, Texas. So they're only like three and a half, four hours away. They have decent support, looks like. So we'll see how it works. Nice. But the next thing is going to be is like, kind of installing it into the truck and then designing a way to mount the solar panels. Cause I want to make like a, a roof rack that bolts onto the top. And then, um, I mean, you could probably just do like C strut, like all across the top. And- well, I was, I was actually th- looking at it and started doing some calculations on wind load and Boeing and stuff. I'm going to use a 1020. Oh, okay. Aluminum extrusion. Yeah, nice. Yeah. I basically want to make custom brackets that will bolt to the side of the truck. You use part of like sun cut send because I, I need to do a bend mm-hmm. and use like quarter inch aluminum, right? The, and then put those plates all the way down the side and then run one piece all the way down on both sides. And then I can put the horizontal struts wherever they need to be for these panels. Yeah, yeah, that works. Yeah. It'll make installation fairly easy. Insulation easy and it'll also make like if say down the road, I'm like, oh, I want to upgrade the panels. I can take the old panels off and then slide the bars around to however, you know, match the new panels. Right. It's customizable. But I'm going to put five panels up there. And so I have a six panel because they come in packs of two. So I need to figure out what to do with the sixth panel. Hmm. Maybe I'll power the cat feeder and reminder with it. <laughs> 550 Just watt panel. Perpetual. Well, sounds like fun. Sounds like you're making progress. Yeah. So yeah, that's what's next with the box truck. If anyone out there has done solar panel installations or anything like that, uh, I want to talk more about it because I've ordered the big chunks and know how to do automotive wiring, but I've never wired. I've actually wired a 48 volt golf cart, but never like solar panel stuff. And there's a lot of regulations out there. Not really regulations. Like there's standards to do the wiring correctly and stuff. So I've been reading up about that. But um, if anyone out there has done that before, come join our Slack channel. Let's talk about it. There's definitely, there's probably something I'm missing, of course. <laughs> um, probably. I guess we'll talk about that next. Not Well, no, not next time. Next time's Anna XOR coming on. Yep. Yeah, so it won't be Steven or Parker. It'll be Crab Foam and Blitz. Yeah. 
<laughs> so that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. Take it easy. Later, everyone. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack.